This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day, welcome to Diplomates. I'm Misha. This week I caught up with Nathan Law. Nathan is a young Hong Kong democracy activist currently in exile in London. He was a key figure in the Umbrella Movement in 2014, and then Nathan and other student leaders founded the pro-democracy Democisto Party in 2016. Nathan then went on to become the youngest ever legislative councillor in Hong Kong history, but his election was overturned on spurious grounds by the CCP. He was then later jailed for his participation in the Umbrella Movement as part of a government crackdown on democracy. After the recent introduction of the national security laws by the CCP, Nathan's left Hong Kong due to fears for his safety and currently resides in London. He continues to speak up for Hong Kong people at international events and forums. He's a nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize, and in 2020, Nathan was named as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine. Now, I caught up with Nathan for a chinwag about so many things, including his path to activism, taking on the might of the CCP in elections and civil disobedience, how the democracy movement has been crushed by the CCP under the cover of COVID-19, why democracy matters to everyone, everywhere, what we need to do to help the people of Hong Kong as citizens of democracies around the world, battle for freedom in Taiwan and its relevance, and how he hopes to return to home one day not too far away. It's a really, really inspiring chat. Nathan is a personal hero of mine. Uh, he's an incredible young man. He's not yet 30, and he's already done so many incredibly brave and incredibly inspiring things. And, you know, he's someone that we sure look up to. And if you're a lover of freedom and democracy, he's someone that you should support. So listen to his story, jump on Twitter, follow him, continue to support him and his fellow people in Hong Kong who are still, despite all the odds stacked against them, struggling uh, for their democratic freedoms. Now, I can also just say a bit of an apology. There's been a bit of a gap in episodes. Um, I do now plan to have more regular content coming down the line. Sorry, it's been a bit of a logistical nightmare, sorting things out on my end with lockdowns and COVID and now getting myself to the US. So rest assured, there's more Diplomates content coming at you in the not-too-distant future. If you are enjoying the show, Follow me on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, follow the show, follow me personally, tweet at me, send me questions, rate and review the episode. It really does help spread the word. Without any further rambling from me, enjoy the episode with the incredible Nathan Law. Nathan Law, welcome to Diplomates. How are you, mate? Yeah, doing uh, really good. And uh, for the purposes of the recording, you are in the UK right now in London. Is that right? Yes, I'm in London. Very good. It's a it's a great city. Uh, I spent a lot of time there when I was studying in the London School of Economics. And I'm, of course, in Wollongong in Australia. So thanks for coming on. Now, I'm really keen to talk about, uh, I suppose, your career to date and how it is that you've ended up um, in the situation you're in and, and in, in London. But I thought we might start off with a little bit of a primer for people just about Hong Kong right now. Um, I'm no doubt you're chatting to people back there with COVID and the way things have changed politically. How are things in Hong Kong right this minute? Well, the political situation in Hong Kong is quite dire. Um, after the implementation of the of the national security law of last June, um, there has been a series of crackdowns on people's individual rights, mass arrests on uh, political activists, campaigners, and uh, union uh, leaders. And also a lot of uh, civil organizations are forced to disband um, because the government is just uh, controlling the whole society 
and not allowing any force uh, in civil, civil society to grow that can possibly challenge them. So I think for now, um, we've been seeing a lot more people getting in jail. People are more worried about expressing political opinion. And basically, um, political opposition is really difficult to continue to be uh, very vocal and continue to uh, criticize the government publicly. So, yeah, so let's just unpack that a little bit. So, um, you know, when Hong Kong was uh, sort of given back from the British to the uh, control of the Chinese Communist Party in 97, there was this sort of promise of uh, one country, two systems. So maybe you just talk about a national security law. Maybe you can just explain one country, two systems, and then how the national security law has sort of interacted with that basic principle. Yeah, um, in 1997, Hong Kong was handed back from the British government after more than 150 years of uh, colonial ruling uh, to Chinese government. And back then, there were several promises made because uh, uh, Hong Kong was already a cosmopolitan international financial hub by then. But China, it was ruled uh, and still ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. And it was just after uh, the 1989 uh, Tiananmen Massacre uh, which uh, was a huge crackdown on uh, uh, democratic protests in mainland China. So there was a, a trust issue and a crisis which Hong Kong people did not trust the Chinese Communist Party uh, that they would uh, maintain the weight of life and that uh, 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 international financial hub status and the relevant values that uh, needed to build that to Hong Kong people. So by then, uh, the Chinese government promised Hong Kong people that they would do one country, two system after 1997, which there are two separate systems governing mainland China and Hong Kong. And for the Hong Kong people in the system, we will enjoy democracy, freedom, and rule of law. And these are cornerstones of our one country, two system. But when we fast forward to uh, 2020, uh, when the government implemented the national security law, it's easy to see that freedoms are all gone because uh, in the law, it says that when the government consider you're breaching the national security, which is really vaguely defined, and from all the cases that we have, uh, it's a speech crime. You don't really need to do anything um, as long as you, you chanted a slogan, you display a, a leaflet, then it can uh, uh, lock you in jail. So we've got that kind of like draconian law and also democracy are, are, are basically deprived. Um, uh, for now, the government is uh, uh, doing a election reform, which makes our directly elected seat in the parliament from half of them into uh, just uh, less, less than uh, uh, just around quarter of them. And then most of the seats are being appointed by the government. So these are, uh, well, really cornerstones of our well, one country, two system are basically being destroyed. And commentators and people just feel like we're, we're not in one country, two system. We're in one country, 1.5 system, or even to a degree that we're in one country, one system, because uh, there's no one sees the role of Hong Kong government now um, as they're already a puppet of the Chinese uh, Communist Party. So uh, you could really tell um, how dire the political situation in Hong Kong just by um, observing how people describe the system and how they feel the heat. And so you mentioned people being arrested. Maybe you just give a bit of a summary of the types of people being arrested because obviously Apple News 
which is you know one of the major free press there that was essentially broken up. Jimmy Live was arrested, um, uh, you know, a few months, well, a little while ago now. But you know, what sort of arrests are we seeing, and what sort of sentences are we seeing? Obviously, uh, you know, as a trade unionist in Australia, we're extremely concerned about arrests of trade union officials uh, in Hong Kong as well. Um, maybe just unpack a little bit about the types of arrests and why those people are being targeted. The crackdowns in Hong Kong are all around it. Um, not only democratic activists, not only ordinary protesters, but um, media tycoon and even uh, unions leader, they also suffer from political persecution. Um, under the national security law, there has already been more than 100 arrests. And one of the landmark case is um, the primary election case, which uh, the government arrested uh, 47 democratic campaigners who uh, was involved or organized uh, a primary uh, election for a legislative council election that was deemed to be held last year, but postponed now. And uh, the government says that when you organize uh, or participate in the primary election and the main purpose of the primary election is to win a majority and you are vowed to say that you could block government's bill in order to express people's opinion. So that by the fact that you are trying to get a majority and you will block government's bill, you are committing a subversive action. So basically they're just saying that if you are an opposition camp in the parliament, you are constituting and subversive uh, actions by exercising your constitutional rights, which is to reject proposals, reject government's um, um, resolution, things like that. Um, so more than like uh, 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 40 uh, democratic campaigners are already locked in jail without granted a bail, uh, without granted a bail. Um, and you, if you look at the list, a lot of unionist leaders like Carol Ng and many others, uh, and also uh, 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 Lee Chat Yan from many other cases, that they are all in jail. And the, the reason is simple, like when Chinese Communist Party claim themselves as socialists, but actually they're not. Um, there are no independent union. There are no protection on neighbor's rights. Uh, the government relies heavily on uh, a, a very extremely uneven capital, uh, capitalist system in order to maintain their absolute dominance. Uh, in Hong Kong, it's easy to see that um, the union movement is uh, one of the prime uh, suppress, suppression targets of the government um, that after the implementation of the national security law, we have countless unions uh, uh, disbanded because uh, they are worried that they are being uh, hunted by the government and many unions leaders are in jail because of that. Yeah, and it's shocking stuff what we're seeing. And, you know, when you've sort of been following this issue and this crisis has been building for a number of years now in Hong Kong and uh, it's sort of culminated with the national security law and it was being opposed and there were protests. But then, of course, we had COVID-19 hit. Would it be fair to say that the Chinese Communist Party has ramped up its activities sort of perhaps while the world was distracted because there was an enormous amount of attention on Hong Kong and the struggle there, and of course now the world's been hugely distracted and upended by COVID. Do you think they've used that as a convenient way to sort of, uh, you know, uh, crush, uh, you know, the uh, freedom movement in, in in Hong Kong? Well, yes, definitely. Um, the Hong Kong Chinese government doubled down their suppression uh, while 
the uh, COVID-19 was uh, getting started. And um, so it, it really distracted the world because a lot of democratic countries, they have had um, a difficult time dealing with uh, COVID-19. Um, but also like in Hong Kong, they is a really convenient excuse for them to ban uh, cr uh, uh, crowds from gathering to expand their power. Um, I think these emergency states are golden times for the authoritarian regimes because they have a legitimate reason to expand their power. But af after, after the crisis, they won't relinquish it. They will still retain that extra power gained and to, 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 to make their suppression more effective. For example, um, uh, after the uh, COVID-19 and especially um, uh, it's actually a couple of weeks before that, that there had already been no protests allowed in Hong Kong and all the proposals are submitted by civil organizations saying that will um, uh, uh, obey all sorts of um, uh, social distance and all the uh, public health uh, concerns and, and, and mechanisms are in place to protect all the participants. But the government all rejected them under the name of public health. But in reality, we understand that these are really political decisions. Um, massive gatherings like uh, 4th of June, uh, 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 candle vigil lights, and also um, uh, 1st of July rallies, annual rallies, they are all banned. Um, and the government, uh, when they um, publicized um, the bans on crowd gathering, um, it's easy for them to use it as a convenient tool to put pressure on uh, protesters or people just standing on the street and, and, and try to protest. Uh, there were occasions where people, they were only um, standing there alone, but they were trying to like um, chant certain slogan or express certain political messages. The, the police just find them, just uh, kind of like charge them with a, a gathering ban, which in fact, they were not violating that. But the government says that um, uh, you and other strangers that you didn't know, they, they were gathering so that uh, you are being fined or you're being charged with uh, the, the, the bans on public gathering, things like that. So you can see like the scope of power that they expanded, um, a lot of them can be used to suppress uh, democratic campaigners and protesters. Mm. And so, um, yeah, you can't see this on the, obviously as a podcast, but uh, you know, those who know you're you're an exceptionally young man uh, still, but you've been doing this for a very very long time. So I'm kind of kind of curious, you know, how did you uh, come to be involved in I suppose a democracy movement um, in Hong Kong? Uh, you know, it's a it's a big fight to pick. Um, essentially, fighting you know several million people in a small city state. Um, taking on the might of the Chinese Communist Party, which is right next door and essentially has, you know, high level of control over that society. How did you end up in this struggle? Um, yeah, I, I, I had not been growing up thinking myself as an activist, as a politician or as someone who has um, certain influence. Um, I grew up in a blue-collar family. Uh, my father was a builder. My mother was a cleaner. Uh, I grew up um, in um, a situation that sometimes we had to rely on government's uh, subsidies and I had been living in public housing provided by the government for my whole life. 
So I would I would describe my families as having a certain refugee mentality, which they um they only care about stability. They only care about providing for their families, even though they know that politics, uh, there are problems in politics. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, um, uh, is very bad. That's why they left China to Hong Kong. They 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 tried to to um avoid the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. But they don't agree that like the children have to be part of um a struggle. They have to get involved in uh, political works because uh, those will bring instability. Um, so I, I didn't grow up in a very political family. It was a, a political family, and I was uh, uh not really um paying attention to any social affairs or political struggles. Um, um when I was uh, uh in 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 um like childhood or or growing up. Period, and the very first time that I had an intention and curiosity to look into these things, were actually at my um high school, uh, where Liu Xiaobo, uh, a Chinese student, uh, got the Nobel Peace Prize, and uh, the next day of that, uh, our school principal, uh, because we were, uh, a very pro Beijing school actually, so, so the principal was funded by Beijing or, uh, yeah, funded by. Um, an organization that is controlled by Beijing. Right. So, um, yeah, when when the school principal uh, was holding um, a, a morning assembly, and she publicly criticized Liu Xiaobo, saying that she uh, he was like an enemy of the country. There were lots of problems of him. Uh, he was criticizing um, a lot of things, things like that. And back then, I was um, puzzled because um, all I knew is. Um, when you got the Nobel Prize, is an honor, uh, is a recognition for your excellent work in that field. So how come such a Chinese person uh, being criticized while he got the prize? And it really triggered my curiosity. And that was uh, the moment that I started to look into the concepts of uh, freedoms and human rights and the works Liu Xiaobo uh, had been doing. And it's sort of um, opening up a gate for me. To understand the world and the society and the relationship between me and the society in another perspective, so that was the start of it. And then uh, when I got into university, when I was involved in um, uh, the student body, the student union, um, when I was elected as the head of it, um, I represented the student union um, to be involved in social movement. And that was the time that I was put under the spotlight. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So you know, you 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 get sort of politically, you know, you have an awakening as you're going at high school. You come at university, you get elected to the, you know, the 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 peak of the student uh, political movement there, which is um you know a lot of people come into politics through university. That kind of coincides with a bit of a you know the umbrella movement and this sort of this uh, this movement that's rising in Hong Kong. So tell us about sort of that movement and then how you got involved in it. Yeah, the umbrella movement is the very first mass-scale um, civil disobedience movement in Hong Kong's history. Um, it took place in 2014, where uh, as a round of uh, political reform was ongoing, and Hong Kong people were just fed up of a uh, uh, basically appointing system of our chief executive, the top leader of our city, um, because it it was already 17 years after the uh, after the handover in 1997. And we should enjoy democracy by then. 
Um, so people were very um, impatient, very angry, um, and they were um, chanting um, a demands on democracy and hoping that that round of political um, reform could grant Hong Kong people a genuine uh, a democratic election on both our parliament and also our executive branch. So um, there were pressure developing, there were actions developing. And at the end of the day, in, in late September, uh, Hong Kong people marched down to uh, the major runway of, uh, the, the, uh, of the city center and they just sat down and they had um, been in a 79 days long uh, democratic protest and occupation in the heart of Hong Kong in order to put pressure to the government and to express their uh, political pursuit. And that uh, sit-in, that umbrella movement, uh, was led by student organizations, um, was uh, led by scholarism and Hong Kong Federation of Students, which I was in the Hong Kong Federation of Students as a student leader, and I participated uh, the very uh, the, the only one uh, dialogue and negotiation uh, between the government and the protesters. And so why was it called the Umbrella Movement? Because I think a lot of people probably don't quite understand the background to that symbol. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it, was not, it was not named by organisers or by <laughs> protesters. It yeah, was it's actually probably not the, most catchy, by, not the most catchy title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was actually named by the press because um, uh, it was a completely peaceful um, civil disobedience movement. And when the government uh, was deploying riot police uh, using batons and, and using uh, pepper spray, Hong Kong people uh, used umbrella to resist it. Um, and and uh, when you look into the protest scene, you can see uh, there were um, hundreds of umbrellas and they were um, kind of um, uh, um, patching up together and it created a very colorful scene. And that, that is a very moving and powerful scene uh, to, to, to symbolize the peaceful protesters. They were going against a, a, a really draconian regime and a, 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 a police force that had much more um, uh, violence than them. So uh, that was actually from the press and people thought that, wow, it really represented the movement. And we adopted uh, adopted that and, and continue to call it uh, Umbrella Movement. That's right. And I mean, even so, just to skip ahead a little bit, we'll come back. But, you know, in the most recent sort of Umbrella marches, there were, you know, close to 2 million people all carrying umbrellas, which is incredible sort of visual sights of that, right? And everyone marching peacefully. Um, you know, did you imagine that you'd get to that point where that many people would all be carrying an umbrella in solidarity? I mean, that must have been a pretty incredible sort of feeling at the time. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, the, the, the 2019 protest, it was uh, five years after the 2014 umbrella movement. It was actually a blow. Um, people didn't expect that we could mobilize so many people coming to the streets and to protest. Um, so yeah, definitely that was, um, definitely surprised um, many like democratic campaigners. And um, after the umbrella movement, because uh, we failed to achieve a political reform that can grant Hong Kong people democracy. So there had been a period of a uh, down, down tight in, in um, the activist groups and in the civil society. And, and that bounce in 2019 was really surprising. So let's go back. Um, so, you know, you, you're, 
student activism, you're involved in these protests and the uh, the occupation um, of Central Hong Kong. I kind of want to just step a little bit to just the family story. At this point, you hadn't talked because you talked about your, your your background. Your parents were not sort of super political, um, and that mindset, which you know, my my family are post World War II migrants into Australia. So I understand that kind of like don't rock the boat kind of mindset uh, uh, from my grandparents. So you know, I'm curious. What were your parents saying about your involvement in this and how did they find out that you were involved? Um, yeah. Well, my mother, um, when she was in a wedding pantique um, in late um, September 2014, and when she looked um, up uh, to, a, to a television because like she was then joining with her friends she was um, 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 happy because like some of her friends were getting married. And um, when she looked up to the television and she saw her son being arrested <laughs> in front of her camera by a dozen of uh, undercover police. Yeah. And she Not was the best way to reveal, and, huh? Not the best way to reveal. Yeah, yeah. It, famous, was, uh, yeah. it was rather dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's rather dramatic. It's like an opening of a movie. But um, yeah, she was shocked. And that was uh, the first time that she realized um, her youngest son uh, was involved in political movement. Um, it had always been um, a, a troubling signal for her. Uh, she had always been trying to con- convince me not to be involved, um, to stay away, to try to like focus on your personal life, focus on building up the family and provide for your family. And to be honest, that, that, that had always been my, 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 my thought. I, I, I wanted to become um, a, a person who can like make more money and, and to, to kind of like treat my family a, a good life because they had been struggling for the rest of their, uh, uh, for, for the rest of their life and they deserve to um, have a better life when their sons are, are growing up and that could provide back to them. Um, but at the end of the day, I, 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 I felt like... Um, it's my, it's my duty. It's my city, and and if we don't come out, who will? Um, and that was like a driving momentum for me to kind of like um, uh, to defy the gravity from my, from my mother and from my family, and, and continue to devote myself into a larger circle in the society. Well, it's all, well, I think it's always a big, almost a bigger call, uh, defying your mum than defying the the CCP, mate. So I understand that uh, it's a big thing to upset your mum. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, you get arrested, but you got jailed as well, right? And so, talk to us about your young guy at university. You go on part of these protests. You get arrested by undercover cops uh, who are, you know, being directed by the Chinese Communist Party. What, what's going through your head at this point once you're you know, behind bars? Like, talk, talk to us about that because that has just been an extraordinarily scary experience. Yeah, I, I, I had been arrested for many times. Um, there were several charges pressed on me. Um, at the time when I was in jail was in 2017. Uh, um, and uh, it was quite a long story because in 2016, I um, found a, a youth-led political organization with Joshua Wong and many other student leaders. Uh, the organization is now disbanded uh, and it's uh, the Mosista and we ran for election. So um, I, I, I won the election by a large margin and I became the youngest ever parliamentarian in Hong Kong at the age of 23. 
Um, so by then, uh, the government really doubled down um, all the pressure and political uh, uh, suppression on me. Um, and uh, nine, nine months after I served the people, I was unseated because the government issued a reinterpretation into our constitutions. And in effect, it has uh, changed the requir requirement of our oath taking ceremony, which each of uh, the parliamentarians have to take it. Um, and change it and apply it retrospectively. So making uh, parliamentarians who had um, made certain statement uh, before and after the, 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 the whole length of oath, um, 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 considering these um, uh, additions were illegal so that uh, we were deprived from our seats. So I was unseated because of these kind of like draconian technicality. It was, but you you got unseated for quoting Gandhi. Is that right? Is that yes, what they yes, say? yes. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it was part of um 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 the, the the plots that they designed, um, saying that you quoted Gandhi. It shows that you are not solemn. You're not sincere to the Chinese Communist Party to the country, and then uh, because of that, you are um basically elected uh, illegally, and uh. Well, more than 50,000 people voted for me and all their ballots are uh, being tarnished, uh, being tossed into uh, a rubbish bin. And, and that, uh, that took place nine months after I served the people. Uh, and, uh, it, and a month after I was uh, convicted uh, uh, illegal, uh, inciting illegal assembly and was in jail, uh, was sentenced to jail for eight months. Uh, because of my participation, peaceful participation in uh, the umbrella movement. And luckily, I spent around two and a half months in jail uh, 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 before I filed an appeal and I appealed successfully at a court of final appeal. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it was just quite a, quite a roller coaster ride when you are kind of degraded from an honorable parliamentarian to an inmate in just a month. And that was definitely a, quite a difficult time for me. So I want to talk about running for parliament at 23, because that's an extremely gutsy thing to do in any parliamentary system, but you're doing it essentially to challenge the regime and we, under which you know, uh, oversees your society. Um, you know, that would have been a big call to make. So what was going through your head when you decided, look, we're going we're gonna to create our own party uh, we're going to run for election yeah. and we're going to change the system from the inside at that point, I think is probably your thinking, right? Yeah, well, um, I was always uh, feeling in 2016 there was still room to work inside the system and also outside the system. Um, we had to really uh, collaborate these two forces of resistance so that we can maximize our impact. And by then there were no no individuals that had the heritage of an umbrella movement that can carry the flag of it, that can remind people that that movement existed and the influence of it lingers. Um, so that um, along with other student leaders in the umbrella movement, we found our youth-led party. Um, the, the party was so young, uh, the average age was even younger than I. <laughs> so you could really identify um, um, the youth energy that it embedded. Um, and we, 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 we ran for uh, just one seat, uh, which I was um, the candidate. And at first, it was quite difficult 
Um, I remember that one month uh, before the election, I was uh, at the bottom of um, the race. Um, we were having a proportional election system. So there were 15 lists uh, fighting for six seats in my, constitution, uh, in my constituency. And that was the wealthiest, most educated, and most like aged uh, constituency. So it has a natural um, uh, rejection to young people like, like me and all the previous elected uh, candidates were lawyers, were professionals, were ex-government officials, were public intellectuals. So it didn't fit my profile. So a month before the election, I was at the bottom of the race, basically. Um, and people thought that, wow, you were just like a, a protesters and activist, uh, a university student, you, you, you knew nothing. You, the only thing that you knew was uh, protesting and, and, and chanting empty political slogans. That could possibly be a, a perception for people. But um, after several like um, uh, aired um, debates in public television, um, their eloquency and the ability to talk about policies, to talk about politics, so the understanding on real politics, and also um, the ability for you to demonstrate that um, the lack of experience may be a benefit, may, may, may mean that you are getting rid of uh, the constraint and the chains and the shackles that uh, all those experiences uh, are applied um, to another candidate or to the other candidates that you are there to do something that uh, you can really rock the boat when the boat is so corrupted and the boat, when the boat is, is like um, doing bad things to people. And I think all these like um, uh, elements combined, um, the kind of perception to a young activist changed and people had certain confidence in him that he could talk about politics, he could talk about policy, he um, understand what is going on in the society and he had that uh, new face, new energy that they had not been seeing and could possibly change the political landscape. So I think having that expectation, um, the, su the support really reversed and a lot more people are willing to vote to a, a young people like a young person like me that they uh, hoped for change. And so, I mean, obviously, you, you've connected with um, the public uh, in, a, in a great way because, you know, you, you, you've been elected, but clearly, clearly the regime has detected that as well. The Chinese Communist Party has detected that as well and they've gone to great lengths to disqualify you out of parliament, arrest you, et cetera, crush you. I mean, at that point, you know, it's sort of bit, we, we've sort of mapped it a bit as we've gone, not in a linear way, but we've sort of now we're getting to 2020 with the introduction um, of the national security law. At that point, you decided uh, with your mates to uh, disband your party, uh, you know, uh, so And so, you know, and then, and then you leave Hong Kong. So talk to me about that. So you, you put this party together with hope, trying to, you know, do the right thing, I suppose, and go through the system and see if you can't stand up for people in the way that we all would in any democracy. And I certainly congratulate you for that. But at that point, what's going through your mind when you're like, this national security law is now in, we're disbanding the party, I have to leave Hong Kong? Well, um, in 2019, um, the massive, uh, the most impactful protest in Hong Kong had began. Um, the the anti-extradition uh, protest um, started 
in June 2019, and uh, we had been through a, a few million people rally. Um, the largest one was um, two million people rally, which was more than a quarter of the city's population. So you can imagine if um, wow. in any other major city in Australia or the whole Australia, that if there were more than a quarter of the population coming out, politics will long changed um, and, and, and the government will definitely disband and, and, and the people will um, regain the power. But that's not the case in Hong Kong, uh, even though we have been through so many massive peaceful demonstrations, uh, the government still refused to listen to us and there had been an escalation of force from the government and also an escalation of force from the protesters as a response to that. Um, it, 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 it really lasts um, a, a couple of months with really uh, uh, intense protestings and conflicts. And uh, when uh, the COVID started uh, in uh, 2019, in early 2019, um, the protests kind of slowed down um, because of that. And the government uh, was trying to Im impose much more restrictions on people. And I remember in May 2020, uh, there was suddenly a news about the Chinese government trying to impose a law in Hong Kong, impose national security law. And we were puzzled because um, in Hong Kong, we've, we've got our legislation, legislation system. Uh, we need to go through the, 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 the parliament in Hong Kong so that we can enact the law. But the national security law was intended to bypass all the local legislation and consultation process. And it was um, intended to complete that in two months. So such a very controversial law and, and law that obviously violates human rights that uh, the government intended to pass it in two months. And we didn't know much before the full draft of it uh, after it was passed, was released. So uh, at that point, we didn't know how draconian it was, how, 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 how close it would close down um, the, the, the civil society and what impact it would give to, to the society as a whole because we, we, we did not see the full, full text of it when it was made. Um, but after a couple of weeks, um, after there were more news uh, released by the media and around two to three weeks before it was officially um, uh, passed and implemented, uh, we were getting a sense it would be an extremely draconian version of it. And it would definitely targeting, quote unquote, uh, uh, national enemies like me, like Joshua, like Jimmy Lai. So um, we were caught in a very difficult choice. Um, um, either we stay and, and, and try to find rooms to resist, um, but we also need someone who can speak up for Hong Kong because it's obvious that under the law, we cannot speak freely uh, because any kind of like appeal for sanctionings on officials on China or having a tough uh, stance on China, holding them accountable will be seen as subversive speech and you will be locked in jail for years because of that. So um, by then I, I decided that uh, we need a, a person with an international profile and with the ability to speak for Hong Kong people on the international stage. Um, so that I, 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 I fled, um, I left Hong Kong be, a couple of days before the implementation of the national security law and arrived in London in order to preserve a voice free from the threat of the national security law. 
So what was it like to leave home? Well, it was difficult. Um, I spent past seven years uh, defending Hong Kong's freedom and de- well, basically devoting all of my life into the city's fight. And I love the culture. I love the people. I love the connection. I love how the city, uh, I love the city landscape, cultural scape, everything. So it was definitely a difficult decision to make, but I, I realized that it was more than myself. It was more than my present preference because I carry a responsibility, a duty for collective goods, which is make sh- making sure that Hong Kong is seen and, and it's being listened to. Um, so even though I had to say a lot of goodbyes, but that I, I made for now, I, I feel like I made the right decision to do it. And so you're in the, you're in the UK now, obviously it's a you know free democratic country, but the Chinese communist party makes it very clear that it considers two things that, um, uh, you know, the Chinese diaspora that live abroad are part of the Chinese sort of communist party's interest. Right. So they take a, a big interest in um, a Chinese people living abroad. And then secondly, they also, you know, aren't afraid to, uh, you know, be active um, in that in that space to try to intimidate people, et cetera. Do you feel safe in the UK um, or do you still feel that there's that reach that can they can reach into uh, even our societies that are, you know, democracies and, and free and open? Well, we all understand how extensive China's reach could be. Um, that extraterritorial, extra-legal persecution on uh, democratic activists, exile activists. Um, well, you can see it in a lot of places, including in Australia, in the UK. So I, I can never say that I'm, I feel entirely secure or safe, um, even though for now I'm being very cautious and very vigilant so that I, I haven't encountered any like, physical attacks. Um, but that is like, for me, I, I can never lose my gut down. I, I just have to be very careful and, and, and to be aware of any like following any spies, any, any people approaching me, things like that. And so, you know, how is the movement surviving, um, at, through this moment? I mean, I understand people are very afraid to speak up and there's been a dissembling of the party and a breaking apart of, you know, the media apparatus of Jimmy Lai, who you said stayed behind and was arrested, obviously, and so many other people had still been sort of smashed up in a, in a way that you would expect if you were trying to crush a movement. Do you th- How is it surviving? Secondly, do you think Xi Jinping will break the will of the people in Hong Kong? Well, um, I think it, it's obvious that um, a lot of possibilities for um, protesters, for opposition, um, are basically gone. Um, so people, they have to invent new mechanisms to try to express their opinion more confidently and in a more subtle way. Um, take an example in uh, of, of 4th of June this year when um, the 4th of June uh, vigil night was cancelled um, second, uh, second time in a row. Um, people were just so angry because um, in Hong Kong, it's, uh, it had been the only place on Chinese soil that could publicly commemorate um, the, the 4th of June massacre and uh, the democratic movement in 1989. And it had always been seen as one of the important events in Hong Kong. And it really shows the consciousness and um, the pursuit for freedoms of Hong Kong people. So people were really furious and especially 
that was the first um, uh, 4th of June uh, after the implementation of the national security law. Um, so when people could not gather in Victoria Park, which uh, is um, where uh, the officials normally held, um, they were wandering around the park, uh, holding up cell phone with a flashlight, um, uh, uh, making it uh, seemingly as a candle when uh, there were so there were thousands of police um, outside the park and arbitrarily detaining people who were holding a candle and saying that it was uh, a, 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 an illegal action to, to hold a candle in the city center. Um, so they, they had to use the, fla the flashlight of the cell phone to substitute that. Yeah. But they were, were still trying something to tell the world, to tell Hong Kong people, to tell the press, to tell the foreign media that there were people trying to express certain signal and they were trying to protest. So that that the day become um, a, 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 a day that many people, thousands of them, wandering in the city center outside the Victoria Park in Causeway Bay, and they were in black. Um, they were holding flashlights and sometimes the police told them to shut the shut flashlights, but they 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 were still wandering. They they they, they just appeared, and that had become a way for them to protest. So after the national security law, a lot of, a lot of things we, we just had some incredible adjustment for that. But still, I, I do believe that there is still a strong pursuit of Hong Kong people. They they just can't express that and when they find uh, the right way to do so, they would, they would definitely do it. And so what can the world do, right? I think, you know, the world, you know, in, in dem the democratic world has sort of watched this whole situation unfold, uh, certainly since 97, but particularly really since the middle of the last decade with, you know, with horror and aghast and, you know, solidarity, total solidarity to the people of Hong Kong offering asylum to people such as yourself and others, who want to leave, but you know, what more can we do and what can it do? What should it do? What would you like to see? I feel like there had been a complacency in democratic countries, in the global community for the past uh, two decades. And they were growing uh, that kind of authoritarianism from China and from Russia and from around the world. Um, for now, we've been seeing the democratic recessions um, for almost two decades. And I think the erosion of freedoms in Hong Kong is just falling into the big picture, one, one, one piece of the puzzles. And I think if we are indeed uh, going to try to help the people in Hong Kong, we just have to stand much more firmer in, in terms of defending our democracy globally and seeing it as a crisis. Um, authoritarian regimes are too easy to excuse themselves from taking responsibility by claiming all the things are uh, our internal problems, our sovereignty problems, and, and, and denying all the human rights claims. And the, the democratic country seems difficult to, to form a more um, uh, collaborated and sophisticated reaction towards these human rights violations and all those like uh, economic coercion and blackmailings to countries like Australia and others. Yeah. And, and I think that that should be changed. Um, we should form a much more coordinated alliance and with the aim of promoting global democracy and addressing global human rights violation and 
to try to promote that values on the and 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 use all of our policies to work with it. Um, it's just a crisis too big to be neglected, but we, we have not been seeing it really properly. We see climate change, we, we, we see poverty as global crisis, but not the decline of democracy. And I think if we need yeah. some changes on the international level, if we need more accountability for regimes like the Chinese Communist Party, we need to start with a change of protection. We need to see the rise of authoritarianism and the decline of democracy as global crisis so that we could formulate global goals, global agenda and actions around it. So I, I do hope that we can have that in, in the short term future so that we can really change the tides. We can really fight democracy back um, before it's too late. Mate, it's a perfectly put. I mean, just on that, right? So curious of your take on this. I mean, I think I know your answer, but I, I think it's worth talking about, which is, you know, some commentators in the West um, and just generally in foreign policy say, well, you know, Southeast Asia, there has not been a great history of democracy in the democratic institutions. So maybe, you know, they don't want it or their societies aren't overly compatible. I mean, what's your take on that? I mean, I, I obviously, you know, I, I disagree with that when you look at places like Japan, Indonesia, et cetera. But I'm curious about your take about, you know, do you see democratic being universal or do you see it sort of being a cultural practice? Well, this is definitely not a cultural practice. It's definitely universal. Hong Kong people have always been ready for getting in a democratic system. Uh, the core essence of the democratic system is to make sure that the government is held accountable, um, no matter is being held accountable by the people um, on its policies or by the international community to, 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 to comply with certain standards that could protect the livelihood and the happiness of people. Um, so democratic accountability is one certain thing that should be implemented all over the world because that could avoid um, people falling into the hands of tyrannies and falling into the hands of dictators who take no responsibility, but only for hoarding wealth for themselves. So I think democratic accountability delivered by a democratic system is definitely universal. And it's the goal that we should pursue, even though we, we could say that there, are, there is a variation um, in between different democratic systems, but we just have to make sure that people um, have the capacity to pick a government, to pick a governing body and um, the ruling uh, incumbent party has to be responsible to them. No, exactly. And I completely agree. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, talked about Hong Kong specifically, but, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is not just targeting Hong Kong uh, within its uh, sort of, you know, in its territories. It's also extremely hostile to Taiwan. Um, now, we you know, won't have time to talk about all the issues related to Taiwan, but I'm kind of curious about how you see a sense of solidarity with Taiwan. And do you think that Taiwan's important um, in this struggle? Because, you know, a lot of people say, you know, uh, Democracy in China looks a lot like Taiwan, right? Um, and so it's a massive threat to uh, the Chinese Communist Party by existing. But you know, do you see solidarity and, and parallels in that struggle? A lot of um, Taiwanese activists are my friends. We've been in a very close connection. I've been engaging in Taiwanese uh, civil society for many years. 
they are definitely good allies. Um, Taiwan is one of the most powerful um, um, uh, democratic entity in Asia, and it really demonstrates um, the, the capacity, the ability of a democratic system. Um, China has always been, um, especially under the Xi, Xi Jinping's leadership, trying to do the quote-unquote uh, reunification, and some say that it's annexation on Taiwan, and that's definitely for us to, to stand shoulder to shoulder to them and to say that Chinese government has to stop that military intimidation and the democratic country in the world, um, the, the community has to step in and to deter China from doing all sorts of terrible things on Taiwan. And so I suppose the last thing I want to ask you before I get to the, uh, the critical barbecue question that I know you just hang <laughs> an answer, um, you know, where you sit right now, you've had to leave home, you know, you, you've had to give up your political party, you know, but you've gone to, to, to fly the, the flag and, you know, to keep the flame alight for democracy. Do you hold out hope that Hong Kong can stay as it is and that we can prevail in this struggle for all the things you talked about in terms of global democracy and, and, and democracy for people of Hong Kong? Definitely there is hope. Um, as an activist, I'm not entitled to lose hope. We have to believe the innate pursuit of freedoms from every individual. And we just have to believe that there is a possibility for change. And the things that I'm doing, doing international advocacy work, meeting with our policymakers, attending in conferences and many others are paving my way home. I really do wish that um, the, the, the work uh, of raising awareness and raising attention and support to Hong Kong can build up a larger international pressure and um, the determination to hold China accountable and to make Hong Kong democratic and free. And uh, would you like to go home one day to a free democratic Hong Kong? Well, definitely. Uh, that, that's, uh, I, I guess that is the biggest wish that I can ever have. Um, so, um, yeah, definitely. I would, I would love to step foot in Hong Kong again. It could take decades, but uh, I believe that, that that will come. Well, mate, uh, you know, we truly hope so. And, uh, you know, congratulations for everything you've done so far. But I can't let you go. Now, obviously, I'd love to keep <laughs> talking to you about this for a long time, but you've got a life to lead and I've uh, got to let you go. But I can't let you go without the, uh, the famous lame question of diplomates, which is that, uh, you know, you are a foreign guest on my show. And so foreign guests have to have Aussies and Aussies have to have foreigners. So three Aussies at a barbecue at Nathan's, uh, who are they and why? <laughs> well, it's a pity that um, first, I, I don't know many Aussies. Uh, That's and probably second, a good thing, I don't right? know how to That's probably a good barbecue. Thing. <laughs> so uh, I, I would love to invite you, Misha, and uh, you bring two of your batsmates who are, are uh, the best in cooking BBQ, and we can start from there. <laughs> Mate, uh, I don't know if you want my mates there, but you're going to have to have plenty of beer. It's the only thing I request, but we'll definitely we'll do the cooking if you supply the drinks. Yeah, well, it's on my bell. <laughs> well, Nathan, mate, congratulations on everything you're doing. Uh, complete solidarity with you and your movement, mate, and uh, we hope to talk again in the future. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope you really enjoyed that episode with Nathan. Um, 
He's an outstanding and truly inspirational figure, and uh, we can all take so much from his leadership. And uh, look, if you can do anything to read about and spread the word about what's happening in Hong Kong, please do so because all that awareness really does help. And you can follow Nathan on Twitter if you want. It's in the show notes, his handle. Now, as ever, I'm going to answer a question. This time I got a question from Sean. Sean has asked me, Misha, what is the reaction in the United States to Joe Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan? Uh, it's funny you should ask that. So the reaction at this point, I would say, is one of shock. Um, I think people are shocked at how fast things have unraveled um, in, uh, in, in Afghanistan and the, and the speed at which... Um, the, you know, the the capital has fallen um, is is sort of caught everyone um, by surprise and in many ways it kind of highlights the the failure of of the strategy for over twenty years for the country to fall so quickly. Of course, it's deeply scary um, and worrying. Um, you're going to have a brutal Taliban regime. Its treatment of minorities, of women, of people who've assisted the West over the last twenty years, um, and uh, we've certainly got an obligation to people like that. Um, you know, it, there's no good answers here, regrettably. Um, I really don't know what the best solution here would be because it feels like another 20 years you would have the exact same scenario. Having said that, the United States often has forward-projecting bases. Um, you know, you look where they went in World War II, they still have bases there to this day, Japan, South Korea, Philippines, um, in NATO countries. So you have to wonder whether or not it was the best decision. Nevertheless, the decision was made after 20 years to withdraw um, I think any any regime would have done it. I mean, people are saying it's Joe Biden's uh, Saigon moment. Um, you know, switching to politics quickly, you could see if this ends up in a similar situation um, as uh, what happened with ISIS, the emergence of ISIS after uh, Barack Obama's withdrawal from uh, Iraq um, in the early parts of his administration um, and then having to go back. So the disaster here would be having to go back um, into Afghanistan uh, to sort out yet more problems. I mean, it is stark that after 20 years, two wars in two different countries, the United States has less influence. Um, you know, Afghanistan will likely be a client state of Pakistan and the Chinese Communist Party. And Iraq, whilst the US has still has influence there, um, is increasingly under the influence of Iran, um, which was always its great enemy. And so Iran has huge influence now in the region um, through its client states uh, with Hezbollah and Lebanon and increasingly in Iraq. So it's a shambles of the highest order. So the the, the reaction here was shock, um, horror, and definitely the speed of it. And then I think a lot of people are querying um, whether or not it was the right thing to do. But on the flips, I mean, it it is an extraordinarily difficult bad decisions on either side i think um committing in the longer term would not be ideal leaving the way they've left is certainly hard to justify but uh anyway look we'll see more i'm sure by the time this goes live this will move even faster i couldn't believe how fast it moved from when i landed here in dc to monday um you know the speed of the unraveling was just stark so anyway, thank you for your question, Sean. I hope there was a bit of an answer there. I think um, more to see in that space and uh, we will watch um, with uh, high levels of anxiety, I think. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in. I will catch you all next time. Bye for now. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show.
or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.